All right. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. This is Kim with Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. Again, we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. Yes, we are Black Free Thinkers, but we are not the Kanye and Candace Owens kind. I just need to make sure that you all understand that. And today, we have a special guest with us. We have Dr. Jeffrey Perry on the line with us. We'll be talking about his new book about Hubert Henry Harrison, and for those that have been listening to this show since 2011, you know this is my guy. I, I've been talking about him from 2011 until now. I knew about him before 2011, but we didn't start the show until 2011. But this book is huge, and it gives you more than enough information. This will keep you engaged for a while. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Jeffrey Perry. Now, in the show notes, I just put – a little bit of the information that was given to me, his biography, and it's truly impressive, but I included some links in there. Make sure you guys go out there and click those links, and one of the links is directly to Columbia University, to the archives. Um, Look Dr. Jeffrey Perry up, as well as Hubert Henry Harrison on YouTube, and you will find a plethora of videos and information about, you know, Hubert Henry Harrison, but in addition to that, I don't want to forget about Theodore William Allen, and he did a lot of work on white supremacy or a lot of work on whiteness and the pathology of whiteness. And Dr. Perry has, you know, shared that information and does, and he's done additional research on that as well. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Dr. Jeffrey B. Perry to the show. He's an independent working class scholar, formerly educated at Princeton, Harvard, Rutgers in Columbia. We will be talking about volume two of his Henry Hubert Harrison biography entitled Hubert Henry Harrison, The Struggle for Equality, 1918 through 1927. It was published by Columbia, and it was published in November of 2020. Dr. Perry's work focuses on the role of white supremacy as a retardant to progressive social change and on the centrality of struggle against white supremacy to progressive social change efforts. For 50 years, Jeff Perry has been active in the working class movement as a rank-and-file worker and as a union shop steward, officer, editor, and retiree. He has also been involved in domestic and international social justice issues, including affirmative action, tenants' rights, union democracy, anti-apartheid, anti-war, and anti-imperialist work. Perry was influenced towards serious study of matters of class and the importance of opposition to white supremacy through personal experiences and readings and through the work of an independent autodidact, working class scholar and close personal friend, the late Theodore William Allen. Allen pioneered his class struggle based while white skin privilege analysis in 1965 and was the author of The Invention of the White Race. And there are two volumes to that. It's incredible. Guys, go out and buy that. Allen's research and writings on the role of white supremacy in the United States and on the centrality of the struggle against white supremacy to social change efforts disposed Perry to be receptive to the life and work of Hubert Henry Harrison, 
1883 through 1927, another independent autodidact anti-white supremacist working class intellectual, Perry considers Harrison and Allen to be two of the 20th century's most important thinkers and writers on race and class in America. Now, this next part here is written into the show notes, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you about it anyway. Dr. Perry, an archivist, bibliophile, and historian, preserved an inventory Hubert Henry Harrison papers and helped to place them at the rare book and manuscript library at Columbia University and to develop the Henry H. Harrison papers, 1893 through 1927, finding A. These efforts contributed to making writings of Hubert Harrison freely accessible worldwide via the Hubert Harrison Papers digital collection on the Columbia University Rare Book and Manuscript Library website. And so there is more. I can talk more about this, but one thing I do know is that Harrison's family, Hubert Henry Harrison's family, entrusted this to Dr. Perry. And, Dr. Perry, I guess I'm going to pull you into the conversation now. Um, do you still communicate with his family? Have you talked to any of them as of late? Uh, yes, I do communicate with them, and, and uh, somewhat frequently. Um, I'm getting older. But I, I just want to say one or two more things, Kim, before we leave. Um, one is um, that uh, I want to stress that this volume that we're going to focus on today is the second volume of a two-volume biography on Hubert Harrison. The first volume was Hubert Harrison, The Father of Harlem Radicalism, uh, 1883 to 1918. And the second is Hubert Harrison, The Struggle for Equality, 1918 to 1927. That covers his full life from 1883 to 1927. Uh, These two volumes are available from Columbia University Press at a 20% discount if people go to their webpage and use the code CUP20. Also, I believe this is the first full-length multi-volume biography of an Afro-Caribbean and only the fourth of an African-American after those of Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Langston Hughes. So he is a giant uh, of black history, Caribbean history. Uh, he's of the free thought movement and a history of atheism, particularly black atheists. We can get into all of that. And one other thing I just wanted to, before we start going into these questions, um, the Harrison papers, uh, I, I, I preserved the papers for the Harrison family. Finally, when they wanted to, to place them, I placed them in conjunction with their wishes And um, they got all the money for them. It was a major collection. I'm not a rip-off artist at all. And those papers were placed at Columbia. I had done a lot of the inventorying and preserving. And uh, we stressed that we wanted a significant portion put online. And last year, finally, it took a while, they put over 1,300 items online, including Hubert Harrison's diary, which is an extraordinary document. Oh, wow. What's significant about all this also is the fact that in this second volume, what really makes it unique, I'm kind of old, but I'm trying to catch up with the younger generation technology. In these footnotes, in these footnotes, I have links wherever possible to online uh, documents that either Harrison wrote or if he's doing a book review to a, a book he's reviewing where you can go 
look at the original book he's reviewing to see if what he's saying makes sense to you. Um, a lot of the books are at the Hathi Trust or Internet Archive, particularly the book pre-1923. And um, so the material is there. And in this book, the second volume, which has, I think, 160, 180 pages of footnotes, you can yeah. go to the footnotes and it, uh, oftentimes I will have links to where you can find online sources related to this. It's not just listing books and go out in the library and try and find them and stuff like this. You can go right to the source. And I, I think that it's really something that people can utilize. These two volumes have been written primarily, uh, I, I've felt all along, for the current and future generations who can really draw from this and build off it and extend because he's so important and he was so relatively ignored, not totally, but so relatively ignored for such a long time. Uh, that's changing now, but uh, it's yeah. just material that is out there. And I encourage your listeners, if they can, to get the books and, uh, you know, utilize them. But another thing I encourage people to do, and this will be my last little pre-discussion pre, pre blurb, I encourage people to uh, try and get their public libraries, college and university library, and or their college and university libraries to obtain copies of both volumes of the biography. And this way, what Harrison used to refer to affectionately as the common people, the regular folk, can go and get access to it and read about him and his book and stuff. Because sometimes people don't have the money to pay for books and things like that. But if we can get him in the public libraries, and Harrison was a great proponent of free public libraries. He considered them one of the great institutions in the U.S., and he was on the founding committee uh, that, uh, for Negro Prints and Literature, which eventually grew into what is today the Schomburg Center in New York, a major yeah. resource in black history and culture. He and Arthur Schomburg were on that founding committee. Schomburg and Harrison gave books. Schomburg had more books, and he gave them. And Harrison used to speak regularly, all the time, at the public library, as well as elsewhere. He spoke all over. And in, in his papers, I, I think I've located something like six or 700 different pieces he wrote, and I've identified probably 500 places where he gave talks. Sometimes there's notes on his talks. Sometimes there's descriptions of them. But he, he spoke widely, and he um, spoke all of it wherever he could. And he spoke before 50,000 people at Union Square in New York. He went down uh, to... In 1911-1912 period, he went down to uh, Broad Street and uh, a market in front of the uh, stock exchange and spoke from 1 o'clock to 4 p.m. when the stock market closed on socialism. And uh, uh, the, the audience, according to the New York Times, ranged as far as his voice could reach. And I refer to that as an early Occupy Wall Street. And um, <laughs> no, so he, he did that, and then he would speak, as people will see and maybe we'll discuss, but all over, uh, as many as 23 times a week for the Socialist Party in the 20s. But, you know, indoors, outdoors, he's a pioneering soapbox orator. 
He's reportedly the first regular black book reviewer in Negro newspaperdom, a brilliant book reviewer. And uh, he, a couple more things since I'm on my roll here. He, uh, he, w- he was the leading black activist. He was a pioneer and a, a black activist in the free thought movement. And uh, a couple of people, Richard B. Moore and others, talked to him as the uh, preeminent black uh, free thinker, atheist. Um, and uh, he also was the leading black activist in the Socialist Party around 1912. And uh, he uh, wrote major theoretical pieces on uh, socialism and the Negro, which was a subject that wasn't getting much attention. They were p- real pioneering efforts in a sense. And he uh, uh, he goes out to the Patterson strike. I live near Patterson, New Jersey, and that was a big labor struggle in 1913. And he and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and Big Bill Haywood are out there speaking. And he um, then gets dissatisfied with the socialists because he, and, and for the reason that he gives is one, it's unfortunate that we didn't know more about him for the last hundred years or so, because he he suggested and wrote that the uh, socialist party leaders and the labor movement leaders put the white race first before class. That's a very profound critique. And uh, when he came to that conclusion, he decided he was going to go and do work concentrating in the African-American community. And within a short period, By late 1916, particularly in 1917, he founds the first organization and the first newspaper of the Militant New Negro Movement. Please note the date. This is 1917. This is eight years before Alain Locke comes out with a publication by Mm -hmm. that name. And in 1919, Harrison edits The New Negro, a journal of the international consciousness of the, uh, I believe it's of the colored races, uh, of the Negro race, I forget the full subtitle. And uh, that's in 1919. And then in 1920, he puts out a book entitled When Africa Awakes, and it is subtitled uh, The Stirrings and Strivings of the New Negro in the Western World. So, And that has, I think, 54, 55 articles in it. So he's right. He's a prolific writer on the militant new Negro years before Locke. But if you read some of the history that's out there, it's as if it all all this movement and interest begins with Locke and 1925, and it's a literary movement. But Harrison's militant new Negro was political, but it was also extraordinarily literary because of Harrison, what Harrison brought to it. Uh, one other thing. Harrison became the principal editor of Garvey's Negro World. Actually, one more thing. So Harrison was the major influence, major radical influence on A. Philip Randolph, who was kind of a class radical black yes, activist, yes. And, Marcus, and Marcus Garvey, who was more or less like a race radical uh, black activist. He's the major influence on both. And if we dig deeper to Strand's, come back to Harrison in both cases. And, um, and Randolph marches on Washington with King at his side. And Garvey, um, his, uh, Garvey's um, 
uh, I mean Malcolm, and it ties to Malcolm on the other side, because Malcolm's father was a Garvey preacher, and his mother was a reporter for the Negro World, the same paper that Harrison had edited. So he's kind of in there and important, although long ignored, in terms of these strands of the Black Liberation struggle. So, grab a sip of coffee. <laughs> Great job. You answered several of the questions that I was going to ask you. But, you know, this that. man was amazing. You know, totally. he was known as the Black Socrates. Yes, several people. Uh, James Weldon Johnson called him that, William Pickens. Uh, William Pickens, I'm not sure, James Weldon Johnson, but a few others called him the Black Socrates, yes. And he, and, and it's just interesting, you know, when we go back and we look at his history, but then look at the history of, you know, African-American um, human rights, civil rights struggles within this country, and what has been kind of lost on some history, but it's starting to come out more, is how in our struggles there has been, you know, um, uh, in association with socialism as well as communism and how it's been a common thread. And so you, you talked about how Hubert Henry Harrison kind of backed away from the socialism a little bit, not away from it totally, but the group that he was affiliated with because they were putting race, I'm sorry, they were putting class before race and they were more, you know, working more towards white liberation, white goals or what have you. Um, well, when he left, let me say one thing. Mm-hmm. On, one thing on that, Kim, before you go on. While with the socialists, he offered some of the most profound statements I think in the history of the left. He said, "Politically, the Negro is the touchstone. Now, a touchstone is yes. a black stone. You rub the, the metal against it to see if it's really the gold it purports to be. And uh, the, politically, the Negro is the touchstone." Um, of the uh, American, I forget what the rest of the phrase was, and he goes on to say, but true democracy and equality, essentially says, true democracy and equality implies a revolution startling to even think of. So if we understand the Negro as the touchstone, that means any issue we look at, housing, uh, unemployment, uh, health care, pick an issue, mm-hmm. see how black people are, See how black people are faring, and then what are we going to do about it? You know, because we know what the what what it's going to look like when we look at it carefully, and that's a very uh, you know insightful analysis. And then he turns it into this is the strategy for serious social change. We have to we have to understand that this white supremacy is central to how the ruling class rules but it's the issue we have to take them on on if we are not to win. So, sorry, forgive me. That's pronounced. Oh, that's okay. No, no, you're doing great. And do you still think that's applicable to today about the black oh, community yeah. being the touchstone? Yes, sure. I, I certainly do. I certainly do. Do you? <laughs> oh, yeah, most definitely. <laughs> you know, and I think so much of the Marxism in, in some of his works there. You know, does uh, does he talk about how Karl Marx influenced him a lot in his papers? I haven't had a chance to go and and peruse them yet, but does he get into how Karl Marx no, influenced? No, no, he, he he doesn't uh, he doesn't discuss Marx. He read some Marx, but he does, I, I've not found where he's actually discussing Marx. Although sometimes 
quotes from Marx are uh, appropriate. As, for instance, when Harrison details his break from uh, Christianity, right? He, de- he details this in his diary. And I think particularly black free thinkers would be fascinated by this. He does this all over a period of years from 1901 to 1907. And, uh, you know, he, when he does this, um, you know, it's a struggle, you know, because that's a, a whole worldview that he's breaking from. And the, the right. church is the most powerful institution in the black community. And Harrison details his break. And uh, when, I, when I discuss that, uh, when I'm summing up, I draw in a quote or two from Marx on religion being uh, being the opiate of the masses, <laughs> you know, a few things like that. Right. Where uh, where uh, what Harrison is saying is very consistent with what Marx had said previously. Excellent. So tell us about his breaking point. What brought him to the point where he walked away from Christianity? Well, he explains in in his diary. He, he, you know, Harrison, as you indicated, he, he's an autodidact. He comes from St. Croix, yes. age 17. Comes from St. Croix. His parent, his mother had just died recently. Uh, he, he, he had lived in the poorest sections of St. Croix on a plantation and then in the what's called the water gut section of Christianstead. And he came up and he stayed with an older sister on West 63rd Street in Manhattan. Uh, back at the turn of the century, this was not so uncommon that a female pioneered in the family was the first one to come up and pave the way for other members of the family. And that was the case in Harrison's family. And um, he stays with his sister. And that was the area of greatest concentration of African and Afro-Caribbeans in Manhattan because it's before the IRT subway gets completed, which goes up to Harlem. Right. So, and it was the most densely populated. And, um, He's in that area. He's working five days a week, going to school at night a couple times, and he still gets citywide honors in uh, headline runs, Genius Found in West Indian Pupil. So (laughs) this was one of the New York dailies, but they'd never seen anybody quite like Harrison. So he reads all the time, and he discusses. He has the benefit of a wonderful group of working-class black intellectual friends, and this is very important, I think, for people to draw on today. Uh, they used to meet in lyceums associated with St. Benedict the Moor, Ro- uh, Roman Catholic Church, uh, and t- with on, on two churches on West 53rd Street. And they would meet, but they weren't necessarily religious, uh, religiously affiliated, but they had a space to meet. And you had, you know, working class intellectuals like Arthur Schomburg, Johnny Bruce, Williana Jones Burroughs and Charles Burroughs, whose um, son and daughter-in-law, by the way, uh, founded DuSable Museum in Chicago, which you're out in Chicago, right? And there's a lot of links here. Yeah. And um, so at these these lyceums, African-Americans, Afro-Caribbeans would come together and they would uh, have freewheeling discussions. They'd have a topic and they would discuss it, and sometimes they'd agree, sometimes they'd disagree. Very principled, but yet they could leave and be friends afterward. I mean, it's a wonderful example of, uh, you know, good intellectual discussion and struggle, what what we all could use today, I think. And um, 
So he, he's nurtured in that environment, and he's reading all the time. And then he gets a job, finally, because he's working odd jobs for the most part. And in 1907, he gets his job in the post office. And I just want to mention, I worked in the post office 32 years. Uh, Theodore Allen, in later life, worked in the post office and also the Brooklyn Public Library. But he was originally a coal miner. But the three of us have this postal tie together also. But he goes into the post office, and he's working the night shift. And even when he's working in the post office, they form a postal worker study group, which would, after what we used to call the, the midnight shift, you know, they'd get off 11 o'clock, 1 o'clock, whatever time, right. 11 at night in the morning, and they'd go to somebody's apartment, and they would read and discuss. And so he's reading all the time, and he starts writing reviews and pieces in uh, newspapers as early as 1903, 1904. And so he's just an omnivorous reader. And when he dies, it was said he read as many as six books a day. Now, I don't think he read them thoroughly, but he knew. <laughs> going, going through his papers, I, I see that he knew how to approach a book, you know, because he would have markings in the book and stuff. And I, I had the sense that he could pick up a book, look at the cover, look at the contents, look at the index, look at the chapters, and figure out what he thought was important and go to it, and then he'd mark up that area of the book. Uh, but he, he, he read all the time, he discussed, and um, particularly around 1907, well, 1901, he starts having his first break from the church because he's not believing a lot of the church history and scriptures, you know, and uh, stories of the Bible. And then in 1907, he probes much more deeply and just comes to the conclusion, I just don't believe this anymore. And that's when he, he breaks and he, he, I, he identifies this and lays out exactly what his thinking was in his diary. And he concludes, well, I guess I'm a I think he says, uh, I'm an agnostic of the spirit of uh, Huxley, you know, uh, Darwin's bulldog, right? And, uh, right? and then later on he says, I'm an atheist. You know, he, he sometimes uses the, uh, phrase, phrases interchangeably. Uh, but he goes, but I struggled. Oh, how my poor heart struggled. Um, because, he goes, when, when you break from the church, that's a whole world view. And it took him a little while to get his grounding again. But then he, he, took, he continued forth. And he's working in the post office, and he's, um, uh, he's, he gets married in 1909. He and his wife would eventually have five children. Uh, first one's born in 1910, uh, I think, yes. And um, he, uh, he's working in the post office, and then he winds up, Booker T. Washington goes to Europe on a speaking tour. And Booker T. Washington was the most powerful black man in America around that time. Uh, du Bois was another prominent black leader, but du, uh, Booker T. was the one had the most influence and sway and had the political machine. He had a thing called the Tuskegee machine. And um, that was his apparatus. Uh, and uh, Booker T. goes to Europe and basically says, because it, it got some coverage back in the States, Things are basically fine back back in the States. So Du Bois sees that and knows it's not right, and he gets together a petition from about 50 prominent people and protests Booker T's statement. But Harrison, 
postal worker in, in New York sees that, and he writes two letters to the New York Sun, which was a daily, uh, basically saying, Booker T., you're free to say what you want, but you should tell the truth. And then Booker T. Washington and Emmett Scott, who's his right hand, swing into action. They contact um, the postmaster general named Morgan in New York City, uh, and they, uh, you know, they make a move on Harrison. Now, what's interesting is to this day, the largest postal facility in New York is named after Morgan. It's Morgan Station on West uh, 38th Street. And Harrison is summarily fired in 1911. Uh, you know, I was a postal worker. I knew how to get records and things like that. So I went, I, I got his records, his personnel records out of St. Louis, and he had a clean record, nothing on it. And then he summarily fired for these um, for these letters he wrote. And that it was a devastating blow because that was a principal source of income. It was a decent income. And for the remainder of his life, he, he and his wife and family were constantly struggling with poverty. Uh, so that was in the early period. Um, so he would read all the time. And then when he breaks from religion uh, and he uh, loses his postal job, then he starts to get involved in the free thought movement. Uh, he does some talks uh, with and around people involved with the Truth Seeker. People may be familiar with that publication. And he uh, speaks at various events. They, they welcome him. And uh, then he gets, uh, gets involved with the Socialist Party and really pours his heart out as a socialist because he really believes, you know, uh, in the basic doctrine of socialism and uh, maybe not how it's practiced, but the basic doctrine. And uh, right. for a while he tried to initiate uh, a Negro socialist club, but they um, they supported it for a short while and then they didn't. And there was a number of other concrete things that he cited when he wound up making his break from the socialists. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> you know, and, it's really and, and let me say one more thing. He and he starts writing uh -huh. book reviews, but he's writing in the New York Times as early as nineteen early, but he writes major ones in nineteen oh seven, eight, nine, and ten in the New York Times. Very unusual. Oh, very much unusual now. But you know, <laughs> especially when you're unlettered, I'll just put it that way. And so uh -huh. and the fact that he was an autodidact. And you know, such a voracious yeah. reader. I mean, it, it gave him depth. And 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 to this day, I don't know if I've run across anyone who um, influenced me as much as he has. And so it's interesting when you brought up um, Asa Philip Randolph. You know, with the Pullman Porters, um, Asa Philip Randolph was out of Chicago, and you can tell that he was influenced influenced by Hubert Henry Harrison, and so is the Harlem Renaissance. So a minute ago, you brought up Elaine Locke and how he published a book by the same name. Um, what was their relationship with? Did he have any type of relationship Hubert Henry Harrison with Elaine yeah. Locke? At, at first, Harrison met Locke, I believe, in 1918, because in 1918, he had stopped publishing his voice for a while, and uh, after he coordinated a Liberty uh, Congress with William Monroe Trotter and men and women from, I believe it was 
35 states to uh, protest during World War One, demanding enforcement 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment and, uh, and opposition to a federal lynching law. And let me just step back for a second and say most people are not familiar with that period fully. Uh, and uh, during World War One, the head of the NAACP was Joel E. Spingarn, uh, European-American. And Joel E. Spingarn... Uh, was also the closest white friend of W.E.B. Du Bois. And Spingarn was a uh, captain. No, he was a major in military intelligence. And he was pro-war. Now, follow this story. And he um, he tried to keep the black community calm and not get involved in protest or anything like that. And as I he was the closest white friend uh, to Du Bois. And uh, when Harrison and Trotter planned this Liberty Congress in um, 1918 to be held in July, June, July 1918, uh, Spingarn tried to block it. He also tried to involve Du Bois in the effort. Now, Du Bois makes his own decisions. I'm not saying Spingarn pulled the uh, strings on that. But, uh, and Du Bois puts in an application for a captaincy in military intelligence Spingarn's a major in military intelligence. People should know that military intelligence was that branch of the government that monitored the black and the radical community. And Spingarn, exactly. uh, Du, Bois, du Bois puts in an application for a captaincy, and in July um, of 1918, I believe it was, he writes an editorial in the Crisis Magazine, which he edits, that's the NAACP publication, I think it was only one paragraph long, this particular piece. Uh, and, and in it, he writes, uh, let us, while this war lasts, forget our special grievances and basically uh, follow Woodrow Wilson's war effort, leadership. And uh, when that phrase, special grievances, Harrison knew exactly what they were, lynching, segregation, disfranchisement, and... Uh, he wasn't going to let that go by. His basic position, Harrison's position, I think, was, you know, we can differ on what we think about the war effort and things like that, but you don't have to take it there. You don't have to, you know, repudiate struggle on those fronts. And uh, he criticized Du Bois openly uh, in an editorial called The Descent of Du Bois. Du Bois. And um, Du Bois essentially wouldn't speak to Harrison for the remainder of his life after that. Because uh, it was a very pointed criticism, and interestingly, Herbert Apthecker, who chronicled uh, much of Du Bois's life over the years, uh, point points out in one of his books, which I cite, that it was about 40 years later that Du Bois acknowledged that his critics during World War One were were accurate; they were right. What what basically what Harrison and others were saying was right, and. Uh, but a lot of a lot of people, a lot of people who are very supportive of Du Bois, um, you know, they get a little upset about hearing about this. But in the book, um, you'll see as you read it and others, you know, I put things in there um, about Harrison and his criticism of Booker T, his criticism of Du Bois, his criticism of Garvey, and I put things where Harrison doesn't come out looking like a rose either. In my introduction. I quote from Rogers, J.A. Rogers. Uh, he says, no man is perfect to his valet, 
And he goes on to say, but that still should not take away from understanding Harrison's greatness, you know. So I try and be pretty honest and forthright in the book, and I try and let Harrison speak as much as possible. I, a lot of things right in his own words. Uh, I'm not trying to pick fights with people, but I'm trying to lay it out the way it seems to have happened. And uh, so Harrison, in answer to your question, I think it was his reading, he read all the time. He's writing all the time. He starts public speaking all over, beginning late 1916, 17. But he had been doing it even earlier with the socialists and the free thinkers. Um, and he's just an extraordinary, what J.A. Rogers refers, refers to as a freelance intellectual. Sorry. Yes. Oh, that's all right. You know, Joel Augustus Rogers, you know, another one of our pioneers, that was out there, yeah. and it's just this is just amazing because when I was reading about um, right around on page six hundred three about how <laughs> Hubert Henry Harrison <laughs> was about to go on tour, he was trying to start a tour, but I was kind of derailed when when I saw the part about Claude McKay being handed a copy of Harris's book, The Negro Nation, <laughs> right? <laughs> so how did that happen? Where did that come from? I know he was in Moscow. Yeah, he's in the Soviet Union. Somebody in the Soviet Union had brought it back or had it sent there. The Russians apparently liked Harrison's writing more than some of the left did, maybe. But McKay was a good friend. Rogers was a good friend of Harrison. McKay was a good friend of Harrison. Uh, Richard B. Moore, so many outstanding activists were good friends of Harrison and respected him. And... uh, they asked McKay to, uh, they wanted him to write something, and they gave him uh, to read Hubert Harrison's book. Uh, it might have been both books, even though I have to look back at my notes. But And McKay did do a book, uh, which was published, I think, in 1923 in the Soviet Union. First, it was only published in Russian, and it didn't uh, appear in English till years later. Um but uh, the Russians picked up on Harrison. You know, he was good. He was wonderful. Yes, definitely, definitely. You know, it's just, wow, you know, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of these um, activists, a lot of these people that we're talking about, you know, went to Russia or commissioned by Moscow to come there on a number of occasions. That also includes yeah. Langston Hughes and a number of other people. And it's just been really interesting because there's still been outright, you know, outreach from Russians even within the last five, ten years to black Americans and and what's happening over here. And so if you could, can you tell us a little bit about what Hubert Henry Harrison thought about there being two Americas in America, a Negro America and a white America? Well, he – he, I don't know if he used that phrase exactly, um, right. but he right. he uh, he thought, you know, particularly as he started writing after 1917 and 18, he thought he could no longer wait on uh, European Americans to do the right thing, if you will, you know, and black people had to take their their current situation into their own hands and shape their future. And that's what he worked on for most of his last, most of the last decade of his life. And um, he even took it so far as in 1924, proposing the possibility of a Negro state or states in the U.S. 
Now, why right. that little thing is interesting is a couple years later, the Communist Party in, in the U.S., taking the lead from, many say, from the Soviet Union, put forth a notion of a Negro nation in the South. But Harrison had actually put it forth in writing in 1924. And, um, you know, he, he was exploring all different possibilities. And he, it wasn't that people would be forced to go there or anything like this, but that people would be able to maybe control their fate and destiny a, a bit better if they had, you know, a state or states. And he, uh, as you go through the book, um, you, you can see, and it, this is why it's good to have a, a digital copy of it. If you put Russia or uh, Soviet Union, uh, you'll see various places where he makes comments and oftentimes very favorable on Russia and the Soviet Union. Um, but uh, his main, you know, his main problem is those who are carrying the torch here in the U.S. You know, where, where uh, white supremacy influences influences things so very much. Um, but, uh, so, uh, I don't know, uh, for a separate nation, I'm trying to think, I don't know that he, you know, not, he, he articulates I mean, like two, it two different yeah. states, Two different states of being when yeah. he was advocating that for the political, um, for the political autonomy of black people or black people being able to run for political office and maintain those seats. Right, right, right. And, and he did do that. And uh, it, he first articulates that, I believe, in 1924. And then he writes about it more uh, in his last uh, his last organization, uh, the International Colored Unity League, when he lays out, this is all part of the program of the International Colored Unity League. And it goes from 24, and he reiterates it again in 1927. Um but he dies shortly thereafter, so he really can't do much on that. Uh, you know, in December, he dies unexpectedly in 1927. Yeah, that was unfortunate. You know, way he was still a very young man when he passed away. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that his family entrusted you with this because we would not have all of this wonderful information about him. Um, out of curiosity, in archives, did anyone ever video any of his lectures or his soapbox, you know, orations or what have you? Very good question. And um, I have searched very hard to see if I could come up with something. So far, I've not been successful, but there are a few little video snippets, video with audio of Marcus Garvey speaking. So he's a contemporary, right? I mean, in that early period. But... Um, I have a friend from St. Croix, uh, Russell Christopher, who says, Jeff, I think I saw Harrison in a short video clip, but I can't remember where it was. And he, he says he's got to ch keep trying to jog his memory. And Harrison also spoke three times. He spoke all the time, but he spoke three times on radio. Radio was a major, you know, uh, innovative uh, way to reach the masses. Harrison, I want to stress, when he was alive, he really mastered the two principal means to reach the masses, which was public speaking and uh, uh, print, you know, newspapers and journals and stuff. That's how you could get word out to masses of people. And he spoke, uh, I, I think I, told, I mentioned before, hundreds of times his talks, but at least three of them were on uh, shows that were 
broadcast on the radio and taped. And I think two or maybe all three of those that were broadcast may have gone out to the Edison Library Collection in New Jersey, which has over, last time I checked, had over a million uninventoried items. And so I always hope that someone will come up with one and maybe we'll get to hear Harrison's talk because these were like half-hour, 45-minute radio presentations, and it would be wonderful to hear him. But, again, you've got good listenership and younger people coming along now. There's, there's so much to do with Harrison, whether it's his, his literary writings. He would speak, when you, when you look at the book, the topics he speaks on, he'll speak about atheism or the role of Christianity in Africa, in the U.S., but he'll speak on literature. He'll speak on politics. He starts the West Indian news notes in the, in the um, Negro world. He does poetry for the people as a regular column in the paper. He's so wide-ranging. People, whatever their interests just about, can find material in Harrison's life, as I've said a few times now, to draw from, to build off, to incorporate. He's that important. Excellent. Excellent. And because we have a lot of non-believers as well as questioning believers and believers that listen to this show, can you tell us a little bit about his thoughts on atheism and free thought? Yeah, let me see. I've got something here. Just bear with me for a second. Um, Sure, sure. Okay, I think I have it right here. Let's see. Okay, here we go. I didn't want to look for this before. Uh, Harrison, I'm going to read a little and then stop and, you know, just uh, interpret also. But around 1901, he divorced himself from Orthodox and institutional Christianity. The break was not, was not abrupt, but came in stages. In 1908, in his diary, he explained, uh, in the course of my reading, I came across Paine's Age of Reason, blah, blah. I was not one of those who did not care. I suffered. Oh, how my poor wounded soul cried out in agony. I saw the whole fabric of thought and feeling crumbling at its very foundations. And in those first fearful weeks of stern reaction, I could not console myself. So I began with, I'm skipping along here. So I began with feverish haste to pick the ruins of these pieces that would serve for the building of another fabric. What had gone was the authenticity of the Bible. What, that which I had been taught was the word of God. When my Bible went, my God went also. Uh, then he goes, at the time, the great healer closed the wounds, and I began to live internally. But I, had, I now had a new belief, agnosticism. I said belief, but what I mean was philosophy of life. You must have one. Uh, and then he talks about the first great stumbling block was Jesus. The power of his personality haunted me for a long time, but in the end, that also went. Then he writes, now I am an agnostic, not a dogmatic disbeliever. If I am to explain myself, I would say that I am in my mental attitude such an agnostic as Thomas Huxley, known as, I'm interjecting here, Darwin's bulldog, um, and my principles are the same. Uh, but I've been genuinely interested in the basis of religion ever since still, and he continues to read about it. Um, but when I got back as far as the third and fourth centuries, I really saw, and he goes through the history of the Christian debates and the Catholic debates, 
And uh, and he just concludes, his main conclusion was this, that Catholicism was the representative type of Christianity and whatever was absurd in it, the three great doctrines of transubstantiation, papal infallibility, and mariolatry would do to an absurdity inherent in the very texture of Christianity. And here's where it marks the Marx quote I was looking for before. Harrison's growth was similar to that of young Karl Marx, who in 1844 wrote, criticism of religion is the premise of all criticism. Marx also stated that religion is the opium of the people. And so these things you kind of see in Harrison, that, that, that the criticism of religion opens a door for Harrison to move into so many other areas. Then when Harrison left the Socialist Party in 1914 and started working uh, with the um, Truth Seeker, the uh, agnostic atheist publication, uh, the, the paper, the Truth Seeker reported that the people will hear him gladly on numerous occasions. He would speak for as long as two and a half hours and drew 1,500 people. Um, the talks on religion regularly included digressions into polemics of textual criticism of the Bible, and Harrison stressed the historical and evolution point of view. The truth seeker attributed new freedom for street propaganda in New York City to the efforts of Harrison and others. Uh, during 1914, please note this date, Harrison lectured for the Radical Forum. This was a group that he was instrumental in developing. His talks included such subjects as Jesus Christ and the Working Man, a challenge to the Christian socialists, the natural history of religion, the nature of religion, the roots of religion, a study in primitive psychology, how God grew, the evolution of the idea of God, the manufacture of gods, the origins of the priesthood, and the defense of atheism. On September 12th, he wrote a major article in a truth seeker entitled The Negro, a Conservative, Christianity Still Enslaves the Mind of Those Whose Body It Has Long Held, Bound. And uh, Harrison stressed that Christian America created the color line and all the great currents of critical opinion from the 18th century to our time have found that great barrier impossible and well-nigh impervious. Uh, after noting that African Americans have suffered more than any other class of Americans from the dubious blessings of Christianity, Harrison explained the two great instruments for the propagation of race prejudice in America are the Associated Press and the Christian Church. He boldly declared that it was religion that cloaked the beginnings of slavery on the soil of America and buttressed its continuance. The church saw to it that the religion taught to the slaves should stress the servile virtues of subservience and content. And um, when the fight for abolition of slavery was on, the Christian church, not content with quoting scriptures, gagged the mouth of such adherents who dared to protest, such as William Lloyd Garrison, Elijah Lovejoy, Wendell Phillips, and John Brown. Here in America, the spirit of the Negro has been transformed by three centuries of subject, uh, subjection. And to accomplish this, Christianity, the Christianity of their masters, was the most effective instrument. This history helped explain why the church among the Negroes today exerts a more powerful influence than anything else in the sphere of ideas. Um, just a couple more quotes. Um, 
in sure, the voice. Take your time. Oh, okay. In 1918, uh, after uh, starting the voice, he points out that the uh, in December issue, December 26, he pointed out that the centers of white Christianities were the centers of organized bloodshed and permanent pre- uh, preparation for war. Uh, and uh, this was his uh, holiday message, you know, in December. And he pointed out how ironic it was that Jesus was despised and rejected of men and that in this, Christ was nearer this Christmas day to the despised and downtrodden Negro than to his haughty Anglo-Saxon oppressor. In 1919, Harrison edited the New Negro Monthly, which was intended as an organ of the international consciousness of the Negro races, especially the Negro race of the darker races, excuse me, especially the Negro race. Um, in the uh, sep- September issue, uh, he, to- he points out that the West- in West Africa, the people stand in no need of advice from the developed decadence of Christian countries and noted various things, including the absence of the evil of social prostitution, which existed in the Western countries and pointed out that in the West Africa, the prostitution existed only in the coast regions where the African tribal system was disrupted and supplanted by the invading capitalist system of white Christian civilization. And he also pointed out that in one year, in 1919 uh, issue, he points out that in one year, the U.S. Army lost 2.5 million through the incapacitation of soldiers by venereal disease, and that from September 1917 to 1918, the army had 190,000 such cases. Uh, and then he talks about how much money Congress spent on that. When um, uh, a Belgian um, cleric came to, uh, came to the States, uh, Desiree uh, Mercier, and talked about conditions in Belgium and in the Congo, um, Harrison concluded uh, that it was not an accurate presentation at all because he basically ignored all the horrible atrocities in the Congo Free State. Um, beginning in 1920, Harrison effectively served as the managing editor of the Negro World, starting in January. And amongst the bo- one of the many books he reviewed in the course of his uh, managing editorship, but one was The Menace of Immortality in Church and State by John Roach, Stratton, uh, a pastor of Calvary Baptist Church, which included an article, The Seamy Side of White Christian Civilization, as seen by a white medicine man. And he explained, according to Harrison, that medicine men, wizards, shamans, and witch doctors were substantially the same all over, whether called by such names, which are generally used only for the colored members of the tribe, or by the more dignified ones of reverends, canons, bishops, etc. Uh, in um, in uh, The White War and the Colored Races, Harrison detailed, this is his uh, article from 1920, the international expansion of, communi- of capitalism and the economic system of white peoples and, uh, of Western Europe and America. He, he, uh, and it's establishment by force and fraud over the lands of the colored races, black, brown, and yellow. Uh, he then described how uh, he, he added that the real sum and substance of the original war aims of the belligerents during World War I 
uh, though, because of Christian cunning, they they really were interested in the peoples of the third world, the countries of the third world. It was never frankly avowed. He also noted that the murder rate of Christian America was higher than that of heathen Africa and every other civilized land. Um, One or two more quotes. Let's see. Sure, sure. Uh, Yes. Um, In his article uh, on the lineup on the color line in December 4th, 1920, Negro World, Harrison talked again about the situation in the Congo and how uh, the Belgians wanted to, quote, save Christianity and civilize it. And uh, but uh, that's where they had all these horrible atrocities, which were. Uh, were, were revealed, particularly in some uh, photographs that came out from that period. And then he also mentions how in Nigeria, when black meets white in black man's ancestral land, black must go down on his knees and wait until the white goes by. Uh, and if he does not do this, he will go to jail or will be beaten by many stripes. In the, quote, civilized section of southern Nigeria, Nigeria the white English Christian minister who goes there proceeds to settle down and organize a Negro church. The country has now developed Negro graveyards and all the separate things that we have here in the Jim Crow South. Um, Harrison described uh, in December 11th, 1920 Negro world described the collective character of white Christians. And he wrote that they are crooked and contemptible liars, cold blooded bandits, and and canting and psalm singing <laughs> hypocrites. And here too, we thought any black person who wanted to preserve a lurking love for Christianity should read this book by E. D. Morrow about the black man's burden, which he was reviewing. Um, and I think there was one more. Oh, in the Negro World of 1921, October 8th, he discussed how missionaries can be trusted to preach to the Negro the ethics of submission and subservience and how the British government is aware of this and is putting the education of the black African more and more into the hands of the white Christian missionary. Uh, They consider this a positive development because one missionary is worth more than a battalion of soldiers. This knowledge, explained Harrison, was why after 500 years of Christian... But the Africans knew this, Harrison says, and this knowledge explained... Harrison was why after 500 years of Christian contact with Africa, only 4 million of its 200 million inhabitants, including a million and a half white Afrikaners in South Africa, were nominally Christians. And I think one last quote. In 1924, in the Boston Chronicle, when he starts listing a few books that he suggests people look at, uh, he listed about 10, but five of them are very important. And he begins... And number one was The Childhood of the World by Edward Clodd. Number two, Man's Place in Nature by Thomas Huxley. Number three, The Descent Mm -hmm. of Man by Charles Darwin. Number five was Modern Science and Modern Thought by Samuel Lang. And number six, The Evolution of Civilization by Joseph McCabe. And he explained that each of these books were available from the Truth Seeker Publishing Company. That's the Atheist Agnostic Publishing Company at 61 V.C. Street in New York. And then, last, just to sum it up here, uh, we have Hodge Kiernan wrote a letter to the editor of The Truth Seeker after Harrison died, and he calls Harrison one of the ablest exponents of rationalism in the city 
and the first and foremost Negro in the cause of free thought. And we have earlier Richard B. Moore describing Harrison as the first great atheist of our race, a fearless thinker and courageous fighter. Taking a break. Excellent. <laughs> excellent, excellent, excellent. And, you know, I'm going to switch just a little bit here. You know, given the events that we witnessed on January 6th, of 2021, this year, Um, on page 513, I'm reading here about what Hubert Henry Harrison said about the KKK. And basically (laughs) here it says, yeah, you know, based on these dates, he said, how could the claim be made that the Klan grew in opposition to Negro political domination, especially since it was not until 1868 that the Negro got got the vote? He then described the horrible treatment Negroes received from former Confederate soldiers who resented the outcome of the war and the fact that the Negro was no longer their slave. These Confederate Klansmen did not care for the American form of government. They wanted to establish a sort of empire in which the white man should be ruler over the Negro. In pursuit of that, claim, of that aim, the Klan was responsible for many Negro massacres and outrages and on one occasion slew 216 white men and women of the North who had come to the Southland to assist the Negro. The Klan continued its ravages against the Negroes in order to keep them in slavery, and it was this band of midnight assassins with the nightgowns which was finally put down in 1874 by an army. Today in the South, continued Harrison, they consider that the Negro is meant for the ditch, and in order to hold him there, whites have to have gone down in the ditch with him. For that reason, the South is the most illiterate and backward section of the nation. When the Klan revived in 1915-16, it first directed its efforts against the Negro, and then as it grew against the Jew, after gaining greater strength, it attacked Roman Catholics and later still all foreigners, and all the while peddling bonk and essential hate. Harrison's point was, that the KKK was directly opposed to true Americanism because it fostered the spirit of antipathy to fellow Americans. He warned his audience to be aware of associating with Klansmen and stressed that our highest duty is to be American citizens, whether white or black, Southern or Northern, Jew or Gentile, Protestant or Catholic. And in his concluding remarks, Harrison scathingly denounced the type of men who had started the Klan, declaring them to be southern tobacco-chewing crackers of a low type of intellect. All right, so I'm going to put that, leave that right there. What's interesting is what we see happening in this country now, especially with the election of Trump um, and in his second run and how close he got to re-election, and the only reason why he wasn't re-elected is because he shot his mouth off about the mail-in ballots and the absentee ballots. And the insurrection that we just witnessed, you know, what's interesting about it is that it is upper middle and wealthy white people that put Trump in office. And with that insurrection, you had a lot of professional people there, doctors, lawyers, teachers, you know, retired and current police officers, the military people. What do you believe he would say about what we're dealing with in America today? Well, I think he would uh, <laughs> he'd be strongly critical 
of uh, the whole situation. I just want to point out uh, what, what you're just quoting from is when he came out to Patterson, New Jersey, which is just a few miles from where I live in North Jersey, after the Klan, the resurrected Klan, had come and burned a cra- uh, cross on Garrett Mountain, which is right outside Patterson. Um, but ha- Harrison would be strongly critical, but I think he would also stress um, – <coughs> You know who 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 benefits, uh, and the ruling class truly benefits. I don't think he thought that laboring people benefit. Um, it's a little bit like there, as Dylan said in you know one of his songs, that pawn in the game kind of you know, and uh, they get used. They might not realize they're being used, and they have vociferous. Um, but I look at things like how the gap between rich and poor is at such staggering proportions now. And over exactly. the past year, how the money is just people are suffering and hungry and without jobs, you know, not knowing how they're going to make ends meet. And the people on top, record income, record proportions. And, um, you know, I wrote about that uh uh, about a decade ago in an article, which is on my webpage, entitled The Developing Conjuncture, and some insights from Hubert Harrison and Theodore W. Allen on the struggle against white supremacy. And uh, it, it, was, it started out as a short piece, a publication called Daedalus, and there's a whole history to what happened to it, which you might want to look at, you and others, in the last five. I did an addendum, what happened to this article. Of course, it was advertised for three months, and then it got pulled. Um, but that developing conjuncture is continuing to develop, right? And so this situation is very serious, um, but uh, Harrison would be out speaking against the white supremacy, I'm sure, and speaking for the need for people to come together and, you know, fight back if necessary, because whenever there was attacks on uh, communities of color particularly, you know, he said, you know, we're going to fight back, you know, and that's how we're going to halt this. Um, but he would, I think, probe more deeply, too, and look at what's causing this. You know, how does, you know, how does this, how does this stuff start? How is it maintained? Whose interest does it serve? And I think he would offer to, I'm, going, I'm drawing from both volumes now, and he would uh, draw on that. Now, that might not be the quick, simple fix that you're looking for. I mean, this is what a period we're living in. I mean, it's tough, you know. Uh, right. I think a lot, a lot of people just can't wait for the next five days, you know, and so they can breathe a sigh of relief, but, although that's not necessarily going to end anything. Uh, but I, I live, and perhaps where you live, you know, I, I go walk my dog four times a day, and, you know, you can go out there and talk to people and uh, people, many people have the same thoughts that are articulated um, by those you saw storming the Capitol, you know, and by those who watch the Fox News and all of that stuff. This stuff is deep and pervasive and we really need um, some organized and articulate um, presentations uh, a progressive left, but when I look at um, a lot of the organizations, I don't want to get into arguments right now with groups, but what I got from Harrison and Allen is after reading and working with them a lot, they understood the centrality of the struggle against white supremacy and uh, that it's not white supremacy 
is not, it's the key to how the ruling class maintains social control, and it's not in the interest of not only African Americans, uh, but it's not in the interest of poor and laboring class European Americans. That Those are critical concepts, I think. And I think what has to be done is that understanding has to be really spread and come to be understood and in the bones because um, what we need is a left that puts that struggle against white supremacy as central. Uh, I, I see groups, you know, groups with good people in them, and they'll have what, we're, what we stand for. Here's what we stand for. And you look down their list. <laughs> Maybe number seven might be we're opposed to racism or something like that. Right. And they're, not going in, they're not going in alphabetical order, you know. It's just they, uh, I think it should be put, you know, it's central. It's number one. That's what we've got to deal with in this country because of the history of this country, how it, how, how the white race, what Alan says, how the white race was invented, how it's been maintained, for what purposes, whose interest it serves. And I encourage people, listeners, to also try and get Alan's books, get them in your libraries. But if, as you mentioned earlier, if you can go to my webpage, I've got an hour and a half video on Alan's invention of the white race with 150 or 200 slides so they can go at whatever speed they want. And it's got 165,000 views. They can really get a feel for what Alan was articulating, too. I recommend that to people. You know, because his work is very important. I know when I had you on the show the last time, we talked about him and the invention of the white race and why things are in a state that they're in. And, you know, what I find very unfortunate is you have a lot of white people in this country, you know, especially the ones that are running behind that particular particular um, ideology, because I was having a conversation with someone yesterday, and they were saying, do you really believe all those people are following Trump? And I said, no, they're following an ideology. If Trump died tomorrow, it wouldn't matter because someone else will take his place, and that next person will be smarter and more insidious and harder to, you know, harder to pinpoint. And, you know, again, it's just really interesting because, again, you have many of these white liberals and these white progressives that are afraid to offend these white supremacists. And that's been mm-hmm. an issue, you know, one of the main issues for the whole time. So how do we deal with that, especially when, you know, the burden of 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 this, you know, of this problem has to be carried on the shoulders of white people because the system was created by and maintained and 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 afforded to white people, then they have to break and tear this system down. And people are under the misconception that the system is broken. And I try to explain to them it's not broken, it's working effectively. It's doing exactly what it needs to do. We have to find um, a way to break it. Right. Two things I'd like to say on that. One, regarding people in left groups or progressive form, form, formations, um, I think, again, the work of Allen and Harrison is very important if they can read and, and really comprehend what they're saying about how it's central to how they rule and it's the issue we have to take them on. on. Uh, if they can really imbibe that, if you will, and really get it, and then it, it's placed as a primary uh, uh, focus in the, all their work. Uh, that's a major step amongst those groups. But also, if you go to my webpage, I have 
um, some articles, I think right on the front page of the web page, on how work against white supremacy was carried on amongst postal workers, how some of the things that we tried to do and that I tried to do, and this is going back a ways, but we, had, we did it with some great success, I think. And what it was was with that understanding, the centrality of the struggle against white supremacy, we started looking at, in our workplace uh, in Jersey City, uh, let me step back for a second. Um, the Postal Service had a big strike in 1970, and uh, uh, Nixon was president. Nixon, yep. And uh, he caught hell because um, uh, th- there was no buffer between him and uh, the Postal Service. And when the Postal Service went, postal workers went out on strike. Uh, the mail didn't get through and Wall Street couldn't get their paper and everything. And in that 1970 struggle, it was keyed in the inner cities of New York and Chicago, where the postal workforce was about 70% or more black and Latin. And so in the wake of that 1970 strike, but this is also in the era of the 60s and the civil rights and black liberation struggles and, you know, the era of protest. And in, in order to address that situation, uh, a few steps were taken by the powers that be, if you will. One was they set up a board of postal governors. So in the future, if anything like this happened, the president wouldn't take heed. He'd have somebody to blame. He could blame the governors. Two, they recognized certain unions. Um, uh, they recognized four unions, uh, but they didn't recognize the Alliance of Postal and Federal Employees, which was a 98% black organization that had been formed under Woodrow Wilson's presidency, basically to fight racial discrimination as a priority. And, uh, but they did recognize four uh, organizations, um, the uh, letter carriers, the American Postal Workers Union, the Rural Letter Carriers, and the Mail Handlers Union, which was my union. I also was in American Postal Workers for a while. And um, but they weren't all in one union. And what's interesting is is that the um, mail handlers union was had been taken over and was controlled by Laborers International Union of North America, which in 1986 was deemed one of the four major organized crime-dominated unions in the country. So, you know, they really had set up a structure to keep the work, postal workers um, from fully realizing their potential. But another thing they did was they turned to building a um, hubs and spokes system of new uh, mail centers, uh, bulk mail centers, they called them. And there were 21 of them built around the country. And the one I worked in was in Jersey City, which is 12 miles from Bed-Stuy, 10 miles from Harlem, 10 miles from Newark. Um, areas of large black concentration, but the, the public transportation was so poor uh, that workers couldn't get there. So the workforce popula- population, rather than the uh, 50, 60, 70 percent in New York City, was started out at 15, 20 percent in Jersey City. In Chicago, they built the uh, bulk mail center in either Cicero or Cairo. You would know better than I. And it was a place, I believe, where the Klan had marched at one point, you know. And it was like a conscious turn to a whiter workforce. Um, so when, when I'm working in the post office in the 70s, the, the black and Latin population in the post office and Asian is starting to pick up, but it's still predominantly European-American. 
And but we say, well, we got to start addressing these issues that, that you were raising before. So we get elected into office on a campaign talking about putting the struggle against white supremacy to the floor. We start doing things like we put out every other week. We got paid every two weeks. And on that payday, we have a bulletin throughout the workplace, 4,000 worker workplace. Got, you know, that was the means of communication back then, bulletins, leaflets. And, um, you know, and every time we put out that bulletin, every issue we looked at, we would look at how is it affecting our workers and very importantly, how is white supremacy shaping it? How is it affecting, you know, black people, Latinos, and what are we going to do about it? So we started that campaign. We started developing an apparatus uh, in which we had black men and women and Latinos, Latinas, and we, you know, we had women's committees, um, education committees, health and safety committees, and we looked at the leadership, uh, you know, chief stewards, and we, we developed a, an apparatus which was over 50% non-white, you know, and we, we took all these structural steps, we did all these things, and we started going after this. And uh, then by 1986, we were able to, from our workplace, co-coordinate a statewide anti-apartheid rally in Jersey City, thousands of people. And we had people at, from our workplace, uh, people who grew up in Jersey City and Bayonne, that's like the most um, polarized parts of Brooklyn and, and uh, you know, Bed-Stuy and, you know, these different mm-hmm. areas of Brooklyn. And um, this was Bayonne and Jersey City and places like this. And we had three-quarters of the people wearing anti-apartheid buttons, people who never in their life would conceive they would do that. And we made tremendous strides. We, uh, we got people elected within a matter of years to our local leadership. We had a, a, one, a very fine national black president elected, came out of Cincinnati. And um, we were really moving in a very positive direction. And, of course, then, the 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 uh, struggle against us heightened, you know, and uh, they they took very major steps. They they wound up. I was editing for the, at the local level and the national level publications, and they demanded I be removed, and they demanded uh, control of the health benefit plan, which was the big prize they wanted, and they removed the national president. But in in that article, I write about on the front page of my website. Um, I try to uh, enumerate ways that people in their workplaces can take steps in every day to challenge this. Even some simple things like, you know, when you go to the cafeteria, maybe we just don't always do segregated eating tables and stuff. You know, maybe there's a way, you know, because people go to the cafeteria in between two and they're taking a break or stuff. So maybe this one and that one go together and they say hi to somebody who's sitting there by himself or, you know, you just think about this a little more and see if we can get people talking to each other a little more. And people come up with very resourceful ideas, and we would talk about it constantly. And uh, I think there are things that can be done. This is not – it doesn't always have to be the way it seems <laughs> it's been. Right. You know? Yeah, just some of those small steps can make a big difference. You know, yeah. and, and we have to challenge it. We have to critique it. We have to make um, deliberate efforts to, you know, stamp the, the, the white supremacy out. 
And, you know, we're seeing we've been working on this for a while in this country. And like you said, you know, you have some people that believe that things are going to get better after Biden is inaugurated. And I just kind of beg to differ because, again, you brought up about the wealth inequality gap. And, and you know, things have gotten progressively worse. And now that you yeah. have these insurrectionists and these other people who have been emboldened and empowered by Trump and others, and like I said, this wasn't just a random act that happened. This started from day one when, when Donald Trump put Jeff Sessions in the Department of Justice, and he started making changes there. And so what happened on the 6th, in my opinion, was Donald Trump's contingency plan. Just in case he did not win, he wanted to put all of that in action. And, you know, you have these mm-hmm. people saying that they were invited by Donald Trump. And I need to go and do some research, but Donald Trump has um, one of his resorts in Charlottesville. And it's <laughs> you know, so I'm like, there, you know, I'm like, I don't know why we're not connecting the dots here, but it's just interesting. But, you know, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. Well, I, want to, and, I want to say one more thing, Kim, Kim, one more thing before sure, I go. Sure. It's, important, it's important for listeners to know that both Harrison and Allen argued that racism is not innate. Right? That's what they argued. Mm-hmm. That it's it's learned, it's taught, it's reinforced. Exactly. It's very important because if if we're gonna struggle against it, we have to know what it is and how we can go after it. I'm sorry, that was my last comment for now. Oh no, but that's okay, but no, you're correct because it is learned behavior, which is one of the reasons why I state this all the time. White people have to learn how to unlearn some things and deprogram themselves. And it takes work. It takes a conscious effort. But it's not just white people. All of us have to put forth that effort because there's room for improvement for everyone. However, you know, you're absolutely correct. It is a learned behavior. It is a learned attitude. It's a learned ideology. Absolutely 100% correct. Tell everybody your website, your personal website. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Excuse me. My personal website is, it's got my name in it with uh, no the dots or anything. So it's www. Jeffrey B. Perry, all one word, J E F F R E Y B P E R R Y dot net. And it's got all kinds of free audios and videos down the right column, across the top, down the front page. There's so much material there focusing on race and class, and particularly on Harrison, on Hubert Harrison and Theodore W. Allen. I I think people should be able to find some things of definite interest. And again, if they would please take the steps to um, contact their local libraries or their college or university libraries and recommend that they get these Hubert Harrison volumes, volume one and volume two. Volume one they might have, but volume two, and uh, for those who want to buy it, uh, they can get it from Columbia University Press. Go to the website. You'll find this information on my webpage too. But just go to Columbia University Press website and put in Hubert Harrison, and the two books will appear, and you can click off if you want them, and you can get 20% off discount using the code CUP. 20, Columbia University Press 20. Once again, the webpage, www.jeffreybperry.net. 
Perry.net. Excellent, excellent. Are we going to have an audio book of this? I'm, I, you know, I'm going to ask them. You're, you're not the first person that asked, and I've got some friends who um, don't read, you know, don't have such good vision anymore. And uh, I, I'll see that. I might even try and get off a little letter today, although I've got about 15 or 20 letters <laughs> I've got to deal with today. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think that's a wonderful idea, and I, I think it, it would be needed. And uh, I'll try to definitely follow up on it. Columbia's been very responsive. They told me that the book came out, it first came out, they weren't sure what the publication date was, but it first came out in late November, and they quickly went through the first printing. And then they, when I talked to them in December, they said, we're just about finished with the second printing. So, and they said, we're very happy, you know, with how the distribution is going, which is good. That's very wonderful news. Excellent. But we've we got a long way to go. And I, I want to thank you because I think this will help considerably and your interest and sharing this with your audience uh, I, I very much appreciate and thank you. And we got to keep Hubert Harrison out there. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is my guy. You know, I absolutely adore <laughs> this man. And um, I'm going to be starting a new platform this year. So I am going to be inviting you to that once I get it all together. And and a young man that I met, and I don't remember his name, but he was a student at Oxford, and he wrote his dissertation on Hubert Henry Harrison. So once I get everything put together, I will have you on so we can have a good time talking, talking about Hubert Henry Harrison. But one thing I do know is that when you come on my show, you generate a lot of traffic for me. And I know that you have other people reaching out after listening to the show. Tell them how they can contact you so that you can go on their shows. Okay, my email is Perry at gmail. So let me give you that one. J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-B-P-E-R-R-Y at gmail.com. And my phone, if they would like that, my cell phone, 201-981-9675. And you'll find, uh, you'll find the email also on my webpage, again, which is uh, net. So I'm not hard to find, actually, you know. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And I appreciate it with some other things that I wanted to hit on. Like I said, Dr. Carol Boyce Davies told us about Hubert Henry Harrison and Amy Garvey, which kind of caught us all by surprise. <laughs> but we'll, we'll say that conversation for another day. Maybe in look, in the, look, look in the index. Oh, I've been reading all of it. Yeah. <laughs> That trial, that was a hot mess. But, yeah, I've I've been reading all of it. I went to that immediately. I got my book a couple of days before Christmas. Uh (laughs) Yeah, and I was like, happy Merry Christmas to me. This was good reading, but you were about to say something there. No, and and a period before that, too, they talk about the the trial, but then there's early – he has some diary comments, too, on her, which I think are – I maybe mentioned before that, so – uh, there might be a few things in the index. Uh, if not, uh, well, you have to poke around. That's why I wish the first volume I had done all the indexing myself. I thought it was incredibly thorough, but Columbia had to limit the index. I think a little bit to fit within the bounds of the book. You know, they couldn't do too many more pages. So, but uh, yeah, this is a thousand-page book. Yeah, and combined, it's a sixteen hundred-plus page 
biography. And once again, for your listeners, I believe it's the first full-length multi-volume biography of an Afro-Caribbean and only the fourth of an African-American after Du Bois, Booker T., and uh, Langston Hughes. And here's a man who's a working class, radical, atheist, free thinker. I mean, he's bringing it all straight straight from the bottom up and uh, bringing it straight and true. And, and this should really appeal to, to your listening audience, I think. Oh, it definitely will. You know, um, I've shared a lot of your you know, postings and your information over the years. So, you know, I've always been a supporter of your work, you know, and it's just as important for people to know who this is and the pioneer. He was a pioneer, and there are a lot of people today who have been influenced by him, you know, even now, not realizing that their heroes like Asa Philip Randolph and, and those people, Claude McKay and the rest of them, how they were influenced by Hubert Henry Harrison. So I am just happy to get the word out on this wonderful person and, you know, and, and get people to reading, you know, because I do encourage people to read. But when that audible comes out, the audio book, I cannot wait. Because, you know, because then I'll get to listen to it in my car, but I'm reading the book as of now. But, you know, it's nothing like just being able to sit and read the book without taking notes. Because what I'm doing now, I'm taking notes as I read. But, you know, your work is phenomenal. I definitely applaud you. I thank you. I appreciate you um, for the work that you did with Hubert Henry Harrison as well as Theodore Allen. You know, very important work. And one more thing, because I'm pretty sure somebody has already inboxed me this. Can you tell them the title of the article that you spoke about earlier, Development Conductor? Yes. Yes. If you go to my webpage, it's on the top left of the front homepage of my webpage. It's called, it's entitled the Developing Conjuncture and Some Insights from Hubert Harrison and Theodore W. Allen on the Centrality of the Struggle Against White Supremacy. And it was written uh, roughly 10 years ago. And back then I go about all the things about how the ruling class is making out so well and poor and working. And I use contemporary statistics back then, which have just intensified, you know, over the past 10 years. And uh, then I go into a brief description, description of Harrison and Allen. Um, and I particularly in, in that work, it's the fullest and most complete treatment of the development of Allen's thought because Allen pioneers a class struggle-based white skin privilege analysis as far back as 1965, but it's not like what comes out with the invisible knapsack and all that stuff in 86. This is rooted in class struggle, and he's very clear that these privileges are not in the interest of laboring class European Americans and African Americans, something that people have to really come to understand, you know, to be able to argue against and talk against and, so uh, and and what also I recommend, if you go to the uh, last five or six pages of that article, I have a, an addendum on uh, my article and how Daedalus handled it, and people might be interested in that because Daedalus is the journal of the American Academy of Arts and Science, and when they asked me to write a piece for them, I was a little surprised to say the least, um, because you know I'm an independent scholar. And they, they said, 
the um, because it was predicted that by 2042 there would be a non-white majority in the U.S., they um, wanted to do two special issues on uh, race in America, and they asked me to send them 2,500 words on any topic of my choice. So I sent them 2,500 words on the title I told you, basically, and they loved it, and they said, would you um, mind doubling it? I said, what? I said to myself, what? All right now, all right. <laughs> yeah, so I did that, and then they advertised it for three quarters in a row on the back cover of their journal because it's a quarterly. And then when the issue came out where it should have been, it didn't appear, and there's a story to be told there. And, Kim, down the road, if you want to get into that, we can do that on some other issue <laughs> of your right, publication. Right, right, right. <laughs> no, boy, no, you, if you like – Huh? No, go ahead. You said you were just, no, no, no. Say what you were saying. No, I was going to say we, we could get into that. You know, it, it, it's a very deep uh, story, and I think it shows a lot about how history gets in this country, which is another topic. Because one of the questions that often comes up is uh, why wasn't Harrison better known, you know, over these past hundred years? And um, I point to things some of the uh, well-known things, you know, he's black, he's an immigrant, he's, uh, he's very black, he's an immigrant, he's uh, a poor working-class person, he, um, he takes on the church, he takes, he's a critic, a major critic of um, Booker T, of leading left figures for sure, leaders in the Socialist Party, Stingarn, uh, and others, uh, Mer- uh Mary Ovington, uh, forgive me for my my, uh, my memory. By the way, I want to point out Spingarn, who was the uh, had that position in military intelligence. To this day, the NAACP award uh, uh, awards the Spingarn Medal for outstanding achievement by a Black American in his name. So people might want to probe into that a little bit. But um, so Harrison's a critic. Uh, he's also. Um, has no long-lasting organizational ties. He um, he uh, takes on the church, which is the most powerful institution of black community. A number of other reasons like that that he's not better known, which I elaborate on. But one of the other things which I've come to m- more fully appreciate over the past years is it's got to do with how history is written in this country. And uh, that right. is a subject... You know, I would love to talk with you about in your audience, but uh, and I get very specific, and uh, I can give some audio and some <laughs> some you know written things that would you know I think really open some eyes on this because um, a lot of people who should have been talking about Harrison weren't, you know, in my opinion. right, and and you get a lot of pushback when you start you know um, studying whiteness or the pathology uh-huh. of whiteness. Yeah, and so, you know, that there are many, many reasons for that, you know, and, and, and one of the most recent examples we can give is when the Trump administration decided it was pulling federal funding from any program that talked about anti-racism or anything or social justice or anything of that nature. So um, this this country has a long history of this, and, you know, I just feel like right now our backs are up against the wall. It has to happen now because, you know, these people have their way, you know, 
I, I just shudder to, to think about what will happen. You know, so we need more white people to step forward, more white people to shut down those racist conversations that other white people have, you know, and I know that's not easy. I know it's not easy, but it has to be done, you know, and, and this is something that we've been stressing. But, Dr. Perry, you are a one last thing, Kim. Come on, whenever one you last thing, go Kim. Ahead. Go one ahead. last thing before you go. <laughs> on my, uh, on my uh, webpage and on my Facebook page, I posted something within the last few days because uh, the anniversary of the death of Theodore Allen is, um, uh, I think, what, what was it? It was January 19th, I believe. Where is it? Yeah, January 19th. So this is the 16th anniversary of his death. And I have a short article, maybe 1,200 words or something like that. I would encourage people to read that because it lays out in detail many of his most important ideas, and some of it are going to be, you know, startling even for your readers. I mean, he's really... Uh, really gets it to the nub of many issues, I believe. But so, and Kim, I want to thank you so very, very much. I enjoyed this. I thought I would, because as I told you before I came on, I saw one of your YouTube videos and I liked your style. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I, I just appreciate and I appreciate the audience. Well, thank you so much. Well, Dr. Perry, have a happy new year. Because I haven't talked yeah. to you in a while, and, <laughs> and I am so looking forward to having you back on really soon. So, oh, um, again, if there's anything you need, you just Kim, feel free Kim. to let me know. Yes, sir. Right. I got something right now. <laughs> I'm not going to let you go. A blurb, if you could, if and when you're so inspired, and if you want to write a little piece on Harrison. That would be wonderful. And if I'm sure you've got your own ways to get it around, but a blurb I could run with on my webpage, and I can see if that Columbia University Press could run with it. So think about that. Oh, it's done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you will have it soon. I'll, you know, I'll make a pointed effort to try to get that out as soon as possible to you because, like I said, this is one of my heroes here, and it's, I'm just tickled pink at the fact that, you know, more and more information is coming out about him, not only you, but now I hear more, you know, black um, intellectuals and autodidacts and academics talking about Hubert Harrison. And, and it's Great. so far that I've heard a lot of black Christians even talking about Hubert Harrison. So you are making mm -hmm. an impact. You are definitely making an impact for the better. So, you know, with what they say, you know, when you know better, you do better. So that's what we're doing over here on this show. So thank you again, Dr. Perry. You know, you guys, Jeffrey, well, www.jeffreybperry.net. Again, www.jeffreybperry.net. Um, his email address, jeffreybperry at gmail.com. Again, jeffreybperry at gmail.com. And the article he talked about, Developing Conjuncture, you can find it on his website, as well as the article, Anniversary About the Death of Theodore Allen, you can find that on his Facebook profile. And your profile is generally open, so people can get access to the links and things that you post. So with that, we're going to end this, but, you know, please expect an um, email from me soon, as well as another invite to another show in the next couple of months. 
Great. Thank you, Kim, so very, very much. Thank you. And again, we are Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. And again, we are Black Free Thinkers, but not the Kanye and Candace Owens kind. And we're out. Thank you. Everybody have a lovely day. Take care. Bye-bye.